try this microphone. Good morning. It's good to see all of you here today. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 18. Acts 18. And in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is coming into the city of Corinth. I'm just going to use a handheld. We're going to skip this whole process. Let's do that. Technology is super helpful sometimes. Sometimes it's super helpful. Other times it's an enigma. But that's all right. Acts 18 is where we're looking today. And Paul is ministering in the city of Corinth. And uh, you're probably noticing all the Christmas decorations and Advent. Um, And so next Sunday we're going to jump into our our Christmas series. Uh, But today we're just going to wrap up here in Acts 18 before we move on from the book of Acts for a stretch. Uh, Here, this is an incredible story. The Apostle Paul is ministering in the city of Corinth, and Corinth is a very big deal. Uh, You look in your New Testament, and you're going to see two letters from Paul to the city of Corinth. He actually wrote four, we believe. We have two of them. And Corinth was a city with more than 200,000 people. It was the capital city of the region of Achaia. Um, To try and picture it in your mind, this was kind of like the Toronto of the region. It was a very, very big deal. And the Apostle Paul, who was a missionary, who was trying to be fruitful and effective, this is like a dream city for him to minister, because he can be very effective and the gospel can go far and wide. And not only was the city an incredible city to minister in, but the Apostle Paul had lots of success when he first went into the city of Corinth. We're going to read that in our text this morning. He had many, many people getting baptized. In fact, the ruler of the synagogue even got saved, and he and his whole family got baptized. So the Apostle Paul comes into the city of Corinth, this incredible city. He has this incredible success. But what I want to draw your attention to today is a detail that seems to be lurking behind the scenes. What we discover today is that that somehow behind all of that success, behind all of that excitement, the Apostle Paul had grown weary, had grown discouraged. And And actually, it makes a lot of sense when we think about what Paul's been through, but our text reminds us of what a person like that needs to hear, a person who who has been pushing on and pressing on and enduring for a long stretch, but finally it just catches up to them. I think that's what happens to the Apostle Paul here, and there's an incredible lesson for us. So would you look with me to Acts 18? I hope you have your Bible open. We're going to read from verses 1 to 11. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. 
for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we begin, I want to draw your attention to a curious detail that we might rush right past if we were just reading this in our morning devotions. I want you to look again at verse 8, which recounts some real victories in the city of Corinth. Verse 8 says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So right there, we hear a story of a monumental win. The Apostle Paul is sharing the gospel in the synagogue, and not only is he having people respond, but the ruler of the synagogue says, you're right, I want to worship Jesus, and his entire family gets saved, and many people in the city get saved and are baptized. Compare this to Athens that we saw last week, where it was a small handful of people, only two people named, that were saved. Corinth, things are happening in Corinth, this is amazing. And it it makes it kind of curious that verse 9 follows verse 8. Because look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, what did he say to him? In this moment of victory, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Which is a a curious thing to say in a moment like that. Because you'd say, what do you mean don't be afraid? Paul's not afraid right now. Paul's on top of the world right now. Everything's going right right now. Why would Jesus need to give this pep talk to Paul now? And from the outside looking in, it's a bit curious, isn't it? Except we're not on the outside looking in because Paul later wrote to the Corinthians. And listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he's describing to the Corinthians what his heart condition was like when he was with them. He tells them, oh, where is that? And I was with you, listen, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So Paul tells the Corinthians, when I was with you, I was weak, I was afraid, I was trembling. So there's a battle going on behind the scenes here in Acts 18 that that we're not privy to, but it's happening. And Jesus sees that this battle is coming. And so Jesus appears to Paul in a vision and he encourages this brother, which reminds us that sometimes... Years and years and years of pressing forward and pushing through finally take their toll on a person. Even people that we find to be very impressive, heroes of the faith, even people like the Apostle Paul, sometimes find themselves under a dark cloud of discouragement. And I think it's very important that we see that today. Now remember, this brother was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Remember that? He moves on to Philippi, they throw him in prison. Moves on to Thessalonica, they chase him out of the city. Moves on to Berea, they chase him out of that city. Finally, driven away from all of his friends, he winds up in Athens and he's preaching the gospel. And and as he's preaching in the synagogue and out in the city streets to thousands of people, they're calling him a babbler as he ministers by himself in the city and he sees just this small handful of conversions after all of his effort, all the harassment he endures in Athens. And now Paul comes into Corinth, and even though everything's going right, he is just wiped. He's weary. He's defeated. One commentator notes, he must have traveled from Athens to Corinth in a dejected mood, wondering what worse could happen and why God had allowed matters to fall out so badly. Right here, before we even get into any kind of outline, just hear this reminder Sometimes you can get so used to everything going wrong 
that even when things start going right, you don't know what to do with yourself. I think we see a bit of that right here, and maybe you've lived through that. I think the Apostle Paul is living through that right here. What does a person like that need to hear? The weary, battle-tested believer who's struggling to press through. What do they need to hear? Well, in our text this morning, we find a word of encouragement for the weary. I want to quickly pull out just two encouragements that that Jesus gives the Apostle Paul, and by extension, that he gives to weary believers. And then we're going to spend the rest of our sermon just really leaning into application. Okay, so two words of encouragement. First, maybe you're here and that's you. The weary believer needs to hear Jesus say this, I am with you. I am with you. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. So these are commands. Do not be afraid, command one. But go on speaking, command two. Do not be silent, command three. How? Paul is wiped. He's weary. He's exhausted. How how can I possibly do these three things you've called me to do? Look at this important word, for. Because, here's how, Paul. For I am with you. That's how you're going to do it. That's the only way that this weary brother is gonna press forward, to go on speaking, to not be afraid, to press through. The only way it's gonna be possible is if the Apostle Paul sees clearly that Jesus is with him. Now, Paul had every earthly reason to be afraid. The world hated Paul. The world hated Paul. Powerful people resisted Paul. They, They sent mobs, not just in their own city, but they sent mobs to other cities to harass Paul. His body kept the score, right? His body is is broken and disfigured from the hatred of the world against Paul. He's got every reason, humanly speaking, to be afraid. And you can imagine him catastrophizing, catastrophizing in his mind as he's here in Corinth. Even though things are going right, he sees he's just been thrown out of the synagogue and Paul's like, I've been through this before. I know how this goes. Thrown out of the synagogue and now I'm getting influence in the city and I can't even enjoy this because I know what's coming. I know that they're going to drag me out again. They're going to beat me to a pulp again. I'm going to be driven out again. I just got reunited with my friends. Remember, he was alone in Athens. The text tells us here that, that uh, Timothy and Silas, are, they finally are brought back together with Paul in Corinth. He's thinking, I, j- I just got my team back. And it's going it's to happen again, isn't it? It's going to happen again. And Jesus says to Paul, keep going. Don't stop for I'm with you. I am with you. That's what Paul needed to hear. That's what you need to hear. That's what I need to hear. In fact, when Jesus calls us to do this impossible assignment, this is what he tells us, isn't it? Remember when we received the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And how are we going to do that? It's impossible. And lo, behold, see this, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, Jesus was crystal clear about this. He's like, here's an impossible assignment and here's the only way that you'll ever do it. Seeing that I'm with you. The apostles could not fulfill this assignment if they didn't see it. The apostle Paul could not fulfill his assignment if he didn't see it. And brothers and sisters, you and I don't stand a chance of fulfilling this assignment if we don't see this. He is with us. Without him, we're just like Paul, in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. Last Sunday, we talked about the ministry in Athens. 
I mentioned how we've been called to scatter the seed of the gospel to the world, but so many of us, we've fallen into this place where we have, it's, it takes us an entire year to muster up the courage to throw one seed into the world. We find ourselves, we can't minister in a place of fear, can we? And I want to just challenge you, maybe that's you. Can you remember when you were first saved? You remember how easy it was to throw the seed when we were first saved? Oh, I could tell anybody about Jesus. We were just at a family party uh, last night, and my kids, I was watching them share the gospel with their cousin, and she thought they were crazy, but they just kept going for it. They're like, you need Jesus. She's like, no, I don't actually need Jesus. You guys need Jesus, but I don't actually need Jesus. They're like, no, you really need Jesus. How are you going to get to heaven without Jesus? You need Jesus. And they kept pushing. She's pushing back on them, but they're like, we're not going to back down. Like, and and it was, I was like that, you know, and so were you. When our eyes were first open to this, we told everybody, I don't care what you think, you need to know this. And then somewhere along the way, that sweet nearness of Jesus in our lives, now he hasn't moved, but something changed in our vision and suddenly he seemed distant and far and we felt cold and isolated. And, and of course, our courage to share the gospel and our motivation, it shriveled up and dried out. And we feel that. Maybe some of you felt that last Sunday. And, and you go home feeling guilty, like, I never tell people about Jesus. I never do this. I do better, do better, right? And, we, and we're trying to motivate ourselves with some guilt. Like, oh, maybe if I just feel worse about myself, I'll finally do it. No, you see, that's not actually how anything happens. That's not how you do impossible things, through guilt and feeling awful. Do you know how you do impossible things? You see Jesus with you. When you see Jesus, everything else falls into alignment. The courage stirs up inside you because it's not your courage, it's his courage. All authority on heaven and earth have been given to him and he is with me and so let's do this. Paul needed to see that and I would argue that for some of us here today, maybe the, the problem is that you, you've lost sight of that. And if that's you and if you can feel the Holy Spirit just saying, that, this, is, this is it. You've been trying to solve this problem in a hundred different ways, this is it. You've taken your eyes off of Jesus then you have my full permission. You can tune out the rest of the sermon. You need to do business with him right now. You need to plead with him and say, help me to see again what I saw. Help me to see, give me eyes to see you again in my life. You need to hear Jesus say to you, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. The weary believer needs that. Now the believer needs to hear a second thing. Jesus says to the weary believer, and I have many in this city who are my people. Look at verse 10. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people. Now what exactly is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that, hey, you know, there's lots of Christians in the city and they're going to protect you, Paul. Or is he saying, hey, I've got, I've got believers in places of power, so you don't have to worry about it. They're going to wield the political sword here for you, Paul. Is that what he's saying? I would argue, no, absolutely not. He's saying something far more profound. One commentator notes, the statement implies divine foreknowledge of future conversions. Jesus is saying here to Paul that there are many people in the city of Corinth who have been set apart before the foundation of the world to respond in faith to the message of the gospel. They don't know it yet. They haven't heard it yet but they belong to Jesus. There are many people in this city who are mine, he says. Now, we've used the analogy of a dog whistle to try and wrap our minds around this before. Um, so imagine a dog whistle. You go to a park and you blow the dog whistle. And people are walking by you and other animals are all around and nobody reacts at all to this dog whistle. But 
within that park, all the dogs suddenly perk up, right? Because they have ears to hear that whistle. And so you blow. And that's what Jesus is saying to Paul here. He's saying, Paul, there are people in that city. There are people in Corinth who have ears to hear the gospel. They are ready. They are mine. And as soon as you go out there and you spread the gospel, I've given them ears to hear, Paul. Go out and blow the whistle and watch what happens. This reality massively shaped the Apostle Paul's theology. Uh, we see this all over his letters. If, you've, if you are reading through your Bible, P.S., you need to be reading your Bible every day. Um, we're coming to the new year soon. And if maybe you find, like, I'm not reading my Bible, get into a new plan. Get started now and hit the new year running. You need to read your Bible. And as you do that, you see the Apostle Paul in his letters. He hits this again and again. When he wrote to the Ephesians, he begins the letter to celebrating. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Paul is just like, he's like, this is the greatest news in the world. Before the foundation of the world, God put this plan in motion. He writes to the Romans likewise, and he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You could, you could find this in each of Paul's letters. He sees this and he celebrates this and he finds rest in this. And maybe you're hearing that and you're saying, well, that doesn't, but that doesn't square with other things I see in the Bible about how we're responsible and I want to say, yes, you're right. Of course we're responsible. In fact, isn't it interesting? We see that reality highlighted in this same text. Look at five, verses 5 to 6 again of Acts 18. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So, so right there in verses five to six, Paul says, you are responsible for, your, for the way that you've responded to the gospel. That's on you. Right? So we see human responsibility, verses five to six. Then we flip ahead to verse 10 and we see God's sovereignty, responsibility, sovereignty. How does this, how does this all fit together? Have you ever tried to just fit this together? I would argue that if you have a theological system that allows you to, put this together and tie a neat little bow around it. You've missed something. This is a mystery. This is like the Trinity, right? This is a, there's no analogy for it. It is a mystery that is beyond our comprehension. Charles Spurgeon said the same thing. Speaking of this sovereignty and responsibility, he said, these two truths, I do believe, can never be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity. There are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them the furthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. So he says, these, can you hold these together? You sure can. Can you make sense of how these fit? One day when God tells you how, but for now, our job is just to hold these two truths in tension. 
And, and I would say, if, if you find the sovereignty of God, if, if you right now are motivated to get into some debate in, the, in the, the gym after the service, then you're missing the point. Because when Jesus reveals this to Paul, and when he points him to the sovereignty of God, he's not doing it to inspire a debate. He's doing it to lift up this weary brother off the floor and to comfort him and encourage him for the task ahead. Because that's what this truth is supposed to do. It's supposed to strengthen us and mobilize us in mission. And that's where I want to turn our attention today. I want to just ask this one question, our last question of the text, which is this. How does the doctrine of God's sovereignty steady us? Why Jesus gave him two truths. The first truth, we're all like, yeah, that completely makes sense. Why is it that this second truth is something that Paul needed to hear? I want to pull out three answers. First, the doctrine of God's sovereignty enables us to trust an impossible plan. Listen, the Apostle Paul, we've, I've already done a bit of a walkthrough. He has, he's gone into city after city after city, and he is following through with the mission he was given. He goes and he preaches to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He goes into the synagogue and he preaches the gospel. He goes into the streets and he preaches the gospel. And in city after city after city, the synagogue throws him out, shuns him. They might beat him with rods in the streets. Mobs form. They might throw him in prison. City after city after city. Now, of course, there are some salvations in the way. But this is a discouraging pattern that is on repeat. And he just came from Athens, where after following the same pattern and ministering to thousands, he saw, like, he could count the number of converts on one hand. Jesus said that all the nations are going to come. Right, that you were to bring this to all of the nations in the world. And Paul's like, I just poured my heart out in Athens for a handful. Is this, this is impossible. I mean, you've got to imagine that he's, he's got some questions in his head. Like, God, how is this possibly going to work? Now, I don't know exactly what questions he was asking, but I do know that Jesus came to Paul and he gave him this answer. I have many in this city who are my people. So whatever questions Paul was asking, that was the answer that he needed to hear. I have many in this city who are my people. This is going to work, Paul. This might seem foolish. It might seem powerless. You're, I love this analogy. I think it was Kevin DeYoung did it first. Sometimes when we're preaching the gospel, I mean, according to the Bible, the gospel is like throwing a grenade. Like it changes things. It changes people. It changes the world. But sometimes when we share the gospel, it feels more like we're shooting spitballs at people in coats of armor, Right? And so we go out into the world and we're just like, you gotta, there's a God and he, loves, he sent Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus. And it, people are just like, okay? Like, what, who are you? Go away. And so, doesn't it feel that way sometimes? We minister to our family and we're like, oh, this is going to blow your mind. Let me tell you about Jesus. And, and they just, okay. And, and it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? Feels powerless. Feels impossible. And Jesus says, it's not impossible. It might, it might look like it's this, this powerless, feeble thing over here and over here and over here. But I have many who are mine in this city, and when they hear it, it's a grenade. And everything changes. So keep going. Paul needed to hear that. And as he pressed forward in obedience, as he watched God draw people to himself, Paul was emboldened and encouraged. The impossible is made possible by our great God, who is sovereign over all things including our listening. Now, maybe some of you need to hear that word of encouragement this morning. Maybe we're applying this in our families. Maybe your family just feels so dark and discouraging today. 
Maybe your ministry in this city feels so dark and discouraging. You just need to hear him say, I have many in this city who are my people. I have many on that street who are my people. I have many in that workplace who are my people. Don't quit. Don't stop. It's not impossible. It feels impossible in a culture saturated with unbelief. Is there anyone who will respond to this gospel? It feels impossible. Jesus answers, there are many who will respond to this gospel. You don't see it, but there are many. I see it. Jesus is looking down. He says, I see this whole thing. There are people who will respond. People whose hearts will burn within them as they hear this message. People who have been set apart before the foundation of the world to respond to this message. Paul later writes to the Romans. He says, how will they then call on him whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Right? Paul's like, we... Paul got the message. He's like, we just, we've got to keep going. We've got to keep sending it out. Throw the seed, church. Throw the seed. There are hearts that have been prepared, and you can't see that, but they're there. There's, there's soil that's been tilled, and that seed is going to land, and it's going to plant root. It's going to happen. Blow the whistle. There are ears that have been tuned to respond to the sound of the gospel. Preach it. How will they hear it without someone preaching? Preach it. If it was up to us to change hearts, if it was dependent upon our winsomeness, our our strategies, how clever we are, this city would be doomed. It would be. That, That would be an impossible assignment. But it's not up to us. Just hear that. Rest in that today. It is not up to us. It's up to him. And he has just called us to be faithful. You just, you bring this message. You keep shooting those spitballs. Even if that's what you, even if that's all you think it is, you just keep sending them out there and watch what he does. He will soften hearts. He will open eyes because there are many in this city who are his people. Let's find them. The weary believer needs to hear that. When we believe in the sovereignty of God, it enables us to trust an impossible plan. And second, it enables us to endure in impossible circumstances. Now, I think this was heavy on Paul's heart. And it feels weird to say that because Paul, sometimes in our brains, he's like a super, superhero, you know? Um, I remember when we read about how he was stoned in Lystra and then he went on, and then he went back to Lystra to the place where they stoned him and left him for dead. I remember thinking, this guy is insane. When he was singing in prison, I'm like, this guy is insane. He he doesn't even, it doesn't even register. His I mean, when I get a cold, I'm the man cold guy. Like, I can't, I can barely function. And here's Paul, his body is mangled. And he's, he's just going on as if, like, well, that's life, right? And just, boom, let's preach the gospel. And you read it and you think he's a superhero. And so then it feels weird to hear him write to the Corinthians and say, when I was with you, I was fearful. I was trembling. Like, I was afraid. It's weird to hear Jesus coming alongside Paul and like grabbing him by the shoulders and saying, no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. G. Campbell Morgan says, this man, speaking of Paul, this man was beaten, bruised, and stoned, bearing in his very body the brands of Jesus. He knew what was going on in Corinth against him and he was filled with fear. We just need to register that. He's kicked out of the synagogue again. 
gathering a crowd and people got lots of attention focused in on him again. And Paul's like, I've seen this movie. I know what's coming. And he's afraid, trembling in his own words, trembling. He feels that. And can I just tell you, just to pull back the curtain, I am so glad to know that Paul felt that. I actually think that it makes the stories that we've read so much more wonderful and glorious and impressive. If Paul was just some superhero, then then it's not all that impressive that he marches back into the city where they left him for dead. But the fact that we know that Paul was the guy who actually felt that and was wrestled with fear and had to surrender that to the Lord, it reminds me that he's just a guy like us. He's just a person like us. Right? God uses ordinary people like us, like the Apostle Paul. And sometimes we're going to be frightened and we're going to be afraid of, of the challenges we're going to face. But God meets us there. And here in this word of comfort, he's telling Paul that no persecution is going to hit you outside of my perfect plan. i got a plan for this city in Corinth. And nothing's going to hit you that's going to thwart that plan. Now, does that mean universally that nothing's ever going to hurt Paul? It can't mean that because Paul is, has been hurt nonstop. And he's going to get hurt again. He's going to be shipwrecked. Like, so he's not saying you're never going to hurt, but he's saying my plan and what I'm doing in and through you, Paul, is not at risk. It's not in jeopardy. There are no external forces that are outside of my control. You don't need to be looking over your shoulder, trembling in fear, because everything that comes your way first has to pass through my hands, and I love you. And so nothing's going to hit you. Nothing's going to come to you except that which is ultimately for your good and for the furtherance of this mission, which definitely landed in Paul's heart because he later wrote to the Romans, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul says, we know this, we know this, we know this. Sometimes it hurts, but, but it's for our good. And I know that it's for my good because God is sovereignly in control of every single thing. And so it can't happen unless it's ultimately for my good. Even if I can't see in this moment how this could possibly be for my good. Which, by the way, is true of almost all of the hardships that hit us, isn't it? In the moment, like how could this possibly be working for my good? When Stephen was stoned to death in the book of Acts, I mean, Stephen had family. Stephen had people that loved him. This sweet man, he was one of the, those who was set apart to care for the widows in the city. Like, this is a beloved man in the church. When he's stoned to death, how is this working for our good? Christians are running for their lives out of Jerusalem. They're scattered abroad. Families are broken up. Friendships are broken up. Congregations broken up. How could this possibly be for our good? And yet we see now that that was actually the start of the missions movement. That changed the world. There's a church in Aurelia, Ontario today because Stephen was stoned in Jerusalem. God was working and Jesus is with the Lord now or Stephen is with the Lord now and he sees the wisdom of that plan. He sees it. When Paul was thrown into prison in Philippi and he's worshiping the Lord, he's trusting that this is working for my good and it was because that Philippian jailer never would have came under the sound of the gospel if God hadn't put Paul with him in that place. And the jailer and his family are saved and a healthy church in Philippi is born. God was working for our good. He's telling Paul, I'm going to put you in the right place. You don't need to be afraid. The plan is not threatened, Paul. And of course, we look to the cross, which was by any outside perspective, the greatest loss in history. This embarrassment, this this 
tragic display of human depravity and wickedness, and yet it was, it was for our good, wasn't it? It was victory. It was life. It changed everything. And that's the pattern that we follow. And our God is sovereign over all of it. And when we, when we downsize the sovereignty of God, when we allow ourselves to believe that other things are happening and God's merely responding, we lose this comfort. Paul needed to see this. We need to see this. There was a plan for the city of Corinth. And there was no power of hell nor scheme of man that could threaten or impede the plan that had been set in motion because it had been set in motion before the foundation of the world. Paul had nothing to fear. Brothers and sisters, neither do we. God is in control. He really, truly is. He really is. When we see this and when we believe this, it enables us to endure in impossible circumstances. And that brings us to our third and final encouragement here. Why do we need to see this? Why did Paul need to see this? Because the sovereignty of God enables us to believe for impossible change. You know, Paul comes into the city of Corinth, and the city of Corinth is a, is a mess. One commentator notes, beginning with the fifth century BC, the verb to Corinthianize, meant to be sexually immoral, a reputation that continued to be well-deserved in Paul's day. So all around, this is something that people would say, oh, you're Corinthianizing, huh? And that meant you're doing deplorable things. In the city of Corinth, they had the temple to Aphrodite with thousands of, of cult prostitutes. Sexual immorality wasn't just a thing that people did in Corinth. It was a part of the Corinth identity. It's who we are. We're the people who do these things and celebrate these things, which... Kind of feels a bit familiar for us, doesn't it? But Paul's looking at this city. And remember, do you remember when, we were in, when Paul was in Athens last week? And he looked and he watched people worshiping these idols. And do you remember his spirit was provoked? Like it broke his heart to see that. Well, similarly, now Paul comes into Corinth and he's looking at just more brokenness in the world. He's looking at this, this sin that's everywhere that's being celebrated in the streets. And again, he's heartbroken. This just seems... Impossible that this city would change, that these people would change. And yet, G. Campbell Morgan says here, the Lord knew the lurking fear in the heart of his servant, fear born of his overwhelming sense of the corruption of the city, of the almost impossibility of doing anything here that was worth the doing. Can the gospel really change a city like this? can really change people like this. I confess, by God's plan, I've been sitting in this this week and just despairing in this this week. Can he do it? Can God change the identity of a city and rewrite it? Can the mind of an addict be rewired? Can, can spiritually dead people come to life? And I'll tell you, humanly speaking, the answer is no. That's the sad truth. People do what they want to do. That's the challenge, right? If you've walked with people, you, you try to, you put all the things in place, but at the end of the day, people do what they want to do, and if what they want to do is the thing that is ruining them, that is killing them, that's destroying them, then they'll keep doing it. As much as you love them, as much as you try to point them to true things, we do what we want to do. 
So what do we need then? We need to want different things. But here's the thing. I can't make anybody want something different, and neither can you. I don't have the power to do that. And the scary thing is the person that I'm praying for and ministering to, they don't have the power to do that either. So that's impossible change. We can't do it. But he can. He can do it. He does it. I know that he does it because I'm looking at a room full of people, of, of people who, for whom he's done it. He changed what we wanted. He changed our hearts from the inside out. He changed, he changed our identity. He does this. I know that he does this. There are people in this room who were, who were addicts and he changed us. People in this room who were, who were the sexually immoral, celebrating these things, and he changed us. Prideful people, he changed us. Unforgiving people, he changed us. Slanderers and gossips and haters, and he changed us. Lovers of money, living for pleasure, and he changed us. I know that he does this. I know that he does it. Only he can do it. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he says, but God being rich in mercy, I love that he's rich in mercy, because of, why did he do it? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He does it. He can do it. He does do it. He does it because of the love in him. Even when we're dead in our trespasses, he does this. That's grace, right? That's, that's what we're all about. God in his grace picks up rebellious sinful people and, and he pays for their sin at the cross sends his own son to pay the, the price that we ought to pay to take the consequence that we deserve breathes life into us by his spirit gives us a new heart because that's what we need where we, where we want new things and sends us into the world to share the hope that we have that's and that whole thing that happened there, he put that plan in motion before the foundation of the world. And I don't know his timeline, and I don't know where this miracle is going to happen in my midst. And, and that's, I, you know, and I wish that I did because I want to control everything, but I don't. And he hasn't told us where that's going to happen or who that's going to happen to, but he did tell us to go and to be faithful and just to share this message and to blow this whistle. And he promises that there are people in this city who when they hear that message, where everyone else, it sounds like death and it sounds like foolishness. He says, for those who I've prepared, it will be, it will be life. It will change everything. And you won't know until you go and you open your mouth and you, and you shout it out, and you'll watch in that crowd that two people, three people, four people, their eyes will light up, and they'll see, this is what I was made for. This is what I've been waiting for. This is everything. It's everything. And when we believe in the sovereignty of God, we stop looking at ourselves. Um, it was my problem this week. I can't change people. I just can't. We stop looking at the hopeless circumstances and the impossibility of it. Because it is impossible. There's no sense lying about it. Sometimes you just need to sit in that. This is impossible. But it enables me to look at him and to say, oh yeah, but this is what you do. This is why I'm here. I can trust you. He can do it. He has done it. He will do it again. And so Redeemer and Simcoe side, hear the word of the Lord. He says to us, do not be afraid. 
but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you and we're very, very thankful today that we are yours. We're very, very thankful that we, we can say that you've worked this miracle in us. You have changed us. You have renewed us. Lord, and I, as I say that, I realize, you know, maybe there are people in this room and, and they can't say the same. They've not yet looked to the cross and seen the answer that they've been waiting for. They don't see in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus the answer to the greatest question in their life. And Lord, I pray that today would be the day when you would open eyes and soften hearts. Lord, when we would lay down all of our prideful objections, Lord, all of our arrogance, and we would just humbly say, you are God and I need you. I need you. God, I thank you that even before we humbled ourselves to ask that prayer, you sent the answer, you sent your son because you so loved the world, you sent him that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. God, hearts are heavy. Lord, I know in this room we think of loved ones, we think of people that you've put in our sphere of influence and Lord, it, maybe we just have a lifetime of, of failing to see any progress, any breakthrough, God, and it's discouraging and it's hard for us to keep pushing and pressing through and the Apostle Paul felt that and Lord we feel that oh God but we know that you're in control and we know that you're with us Lord so would you help us in our unbelief Lord we believe we believe help us in our unbelief give us eyes to see your nearness give us eyes to see your power your wisdom your love the God who is rich in mercy is in control and that's good news It's actually good news that we are not the ones in control. Uh, It's good news that it's up to you, God, so we trust you. Uh, Help us now as we respond to you and worship. Lord, I pray that you would um, receive the praise that you deserve in this place. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?